You're listening to the Birth Matters Podcast, episode 43. I would say before you have the baby, make sure that you do have some sort of support system because, and this goes for all women, but for me, Black women specifically, we have this stigma tied to us of being the strong Black woman. Mm-hmm. And it's like with that phrase, it doesn't really give us permission to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think that for any Black woman, it's okay to be vulnerable in that state. You know, And again, this is for any woman that feels that kind of pressure of like, oh, I gotta be super mom. I gotta be the most amazing mom ever. Don't expect yourself to be super mom. Tell that side of you, listen, go, go sit down somewhere, relax. It's okay that we don't have this all together. We'll get there, but right now we don't have it all figured out and mm-hmm. that's okay. So just have that support system ready just in case if you need it. Hey there, and welcome to the Birth Matters Show. I'm your host, Lisa Graves-Taylor, founder of Birth Matters NYC Childbirth Education and Labor Support. This show is here to lessen your overwhelm on the journey into parenthood by equipping and encouraging you with current best evidence info and soulful interviews with parents and birth pros. Please keep in mind the information on this show is not intended as medical advice or to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. If you have a positive birth story or interesting fertility journey story you'd like to share, please pitch it to us by emailing podcast at birthmattersnyc.com. Today, you'll hear a story shared by Amira, a black woman living in New York City who planned to give birth at home due to her knowledge about the poor outcomes for black birthing folks in hospitals. If you stay tuned to the end of this episode, I'll speak about these poor outcomes further and share ways you can help improve things. Things took an unexpected turn when she learned her baby had a cleft diagnosis so that she had to switch to a hospital birth attended by midwives. Amira shares how she intentionally chose black care providers not only for her birth support team, including her doula, but also as she selected a surgeon during pregnancy to correct the cleft soon after birth. Amira also provides a bunch of excellent tips for expectant and new parents toward the end, too, so be sure to listen to the whole episode. Before we jump into the story, I wanted to remind you that you can be entered to win a $50 Amazon gift card to help with your holiday shopping in two simple steps. Step one, leave a review of this podcast wherever you listen. Step two, post a screenshot of the review and podcast logo to Instagram, tagging us at birthmattersnyc. We'll announce winners on November 17th and December 15th. You'll not only have a chance to win, but you'll also be helping other expectant parents find the podcast. So many thanks and good luck. Now let's get started with today's story. Welcome, Amira. Hi, thank you, Lisa, for having me. (laughs) It's so good to see you. So Amira is one of my students from birth class, and she's going to be sharing her birth story with us today. But first, would you please share with us where you are in your parenting journey? In other words, how long ago did you give birth? And then maybe what you do for a living and maybe where you live. You live in New York City, right? But like maybe more specifically borough or whatever. (laughs) So I'm actually seven months into parenting. Nicholas was born in January. I'm a career advisor for the New York State Department of Labor, and I live in the Bronx. Thank you. So can you share first, before you get into your birth story, a little bit about pregnancy? Were there any events to note, or what was it like for you, and what ways did you prepare for giving birth and for becoming a parent? 
Okay, so as far as with the pregnancy, for me personally, the pregnancy was a breeze. Like usually, I guess what I received from other women being pregnant is, you know, they went through the list of things that they went through, like weird cravings. What is it? Nausea and actually, you know, vomiting. But for me personally, I didn't, I had the morning sickness. I just didn't have the vomiting. So for me, that was, that was great, but it was just annoying having that nausea feeling for the whole day. And I mean, I don't know why they call it morning sickness because it lasted basically the whole day. <laughs> um, <laughs> so as far as with preparing to be a parent, I mean, that's not really something that I <laughs> prepared for. <laughs> I was just really honestly trying to get through the, the pregnancy so one of the things that I really did my best to do was to have a positive mind state throughout the pregnancy uh, because I didn't want any type of stress or whatever anger I could possibly feel to affect the baby. So yeah, so I just did the best I could to keep a positive mindset. What also helps is, I mean, I guess being pregnant, people do tend to treat you a lot nicer. So... <laughs> you know, for fear of, what is it, getting a sty in their eye. So yeah, I guess dealing with people relationship-wise, they tread it lightly as far as, you know, trying to possibly get me upset or anything like that. But I mean, if they did, then, you know, I would just brush it off. But some of the things that I actually did to prepare, because actually when I did become pregnant, I didn't know I was. Um, I had some sort of feeling, but I didn't want to get my hopes up because my husband and I were trying for about almost two years to get pregnant. And I had the symptoms of being tired all the time and, you know, the nausea. But again, I kind of suspected maybe that's it, but I was thinking the worst, you know, okay, maybe I'm just, you know, really sick. Or I have some kind of illness. That's what I was thinking. But once I did find out, I, well, before I got pregnant, years ago, my sister showed me a movie, the documentary, the business of being born. And from that point, I decided, you know, I want to give birth at home. You know, I don't want to go to a hospital. My personal fear was that, you know, statistically African-American women or just black women have a higher rate of dying and you know, during childbirth in hospitals. And I didn't want that myself. So I decided, you know, I'm going to go with a midwife. And, you know, my husband was looking at me like, you know, are you sure, you know, hospital seems much safer. I'm like, no. So I told him what the statistics were towards that. And once he heard that, he's like, okay. So mm -hmm. he decided to become on board. Do and, you mind my asking, do you remember how you heard about the worst outcomes for African-American Black women? I think, I think, okay, I want to say the conversation started when it was a few years back, that case that made the news of a Black woman in Florida I think she was in labor and the ambulance didn't come. Like they took forever to get to her. And by the time they got to her, she had already died. And I, I think it was maybe about two, three years ago when that happened, but I could be wrong. But yeah, that, that's when I heard that statistically, you know, African-American women or just black women have the highest rate of uh, mortality when it comes to giving birth in a hospital. So, yeah, so that was my main fear is I didn't want that. I didn't want to become a statistic. Mm. I did book a, a midwife 
And, you know, it was great. You know, I enjoyed the convenience of her coming to me. You know, I didn't have to go to the hospital to, you know, sit in a waiting room to wait to be seen and only be seen for maybe less than 10 minutes and then bye. You know, she was very engaging, you know, always asked about my well-being. So it really felt personal, like that one-on-one care. Like you really felt like, you know, you were being, well, I felt like I was being cared for and that, you know, I wasn't just on a, with it, like a conveyor belt, like, okay, next. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like they're trying to rush you out. So that's what I really enjoyed about it. So I believe when she had me go in for my first sonogram, the ultrasound technician, I forgot how many weeks I was in, but you were actually able to see detail on the baby's face. And she felt that there was possibly a cleft. So for me, I'm thinking, you know, cleft, like what? Like, no. <laughs> that, I mean, so I, I was basically in a state of denial where, you know, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe it's a mistake. Maybe, you know, since the baby's not really is being stubborn with the ultrasound, you know, maybe the, the angle, it just looks like there's a cleft, but there really isn't a cleft. So the more I kept doing the ultrasounds, the more it was confirmed that there is a cleft. Mm-hmm. And could they see the severity of it with um, confidence? They, they could. So from what I was told consistently throughout each ultrasound was that it wasn't severe. It wasn't what they call the cleft palate. Mm-hmm. It was just a slight cleft. And they said, you know, that can easily be corrected with surgery. Mm-hmm. So the weird thing, though, is that, you know, I was t- told that it wasn't severe, And I was even told that by the head doctor at the ultrasound um, facility. But I believe that he told my midwife a totally different story. So when she explained it to me, in her words, it sounded like it was something extremely severe. And what wound up happening is, fast forward, she wound up dropping the services because her fear was that, you know, there could be a risk if I gave birth to a child with a cleft at home. So hearing that, you know, that really broke my heart. Because again, I was really adamant of, I don't want to, I don't want to go to the hospital. Yeah. And so when she hung up the phone with me, you know, I cried because that was my dream. My dream was to do a home birth. So once we went to the same place again to get an ultrasound, my husband, unbeknownst to me, I wasn't aware that he was going to ask the question, but he asked the the head doctor what was his take on home births. And to sum it up, he was basically against it. He was all for modern medicine, the modern medicine approach of, you know, giving birth to a baby in a hospital. And I believe that his personal bias may have had to do with his wording on how he explained things to my midwife. Um, That's exactly what I was thinking. Dropped the services. Mm-hmm. Oh. So yeah, I was really upset by that. Mm. So luckily she did re- give me other referrals to other places. So I went to Village Maternity. They actually do have two locations. So one in Upper Manhattan and one in Greenwich Village. So if anybody is looking for strictly midwife services, it's the one in Greenwich Village that provides that service. The other one in Upper Manhattan, they don't offer that. 
Well, that's good to know that this medical condition didn't necessitate, while it did mean the recommendation was to be in the hospital, it didn't necessitate having to work with an OB if you didn't want to, if you still wanted that midwifery model of care. So I'm glad to hear that. Yes. So I was, I was still happy about that. I mean, the only thing is, you know, they don't come to you. We do have to go to the facility to be serviced. Big difference. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that is the Darn. difference. <laughs> um, but you do still feel that one-on-one personal care, even though, you know, they were busy when they greeted you, you felt that, you know, you had that relationship. So that's what I still enjoyed about it. You still have that one-on-one care where, you know, you felt like, you know, you were being basically cared for. So that's what I enjoyed about it. But again, the only downside, you can go down. (laughs) Do you mind my asking, when you chose your home birth midwife, did you seek out specifically a Black midwife? Because I know some people prefer for their care provider and, or maybe their doula to have that shared experience as a person of color, um, but then others don't really. So did that play in at all to the dynamic of who you chose? Um, I actually did. I did pick in a Black midwife, not because I had any personal bias against you know anybody else of another race, but I just wanted, you know, so... <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> very understandable. I can relate to. Um, sure. Oh, and I also did seek out a doula. So she did give me a listing of doulas that she worked with and she recommended. Mm-hmm. So I did choose one from her list and she was amazing. I, I believe from what I remember, she did like three home visits. She did ask a lot of questions, things like things really uh, deep and personal, like, you know, if I was ever involved in any sexual assaults or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And um, if you do wind up having a doula that asks those questions, I would say be honest. It's not because they're just trying to be nosy, but surprisingly, from what my doula told me is that she had experiences where a woman was giving birth and all of a sudden that trauma of being uh, sexually assaulted mm-hmm. comes comes in and interferes with the pregnancy. Yes. So I would say, again, you know, if you were a victim of sexual assault, definitely, you know, be honest with that. It's not like she's going to take that information and go, you know, disclose it to anybody else. Um, Yeah, it's definitely confidential. So once you do disclose that, you do look and probably give you some steps on what you can do to, as far as coping mechanisms on what to Mm -hmm. do, if that stuff does come rushing back during actual labor. Mm-hmm. So she was really amazing. Her name is Suri Jenkins. So it's A B U R I and mm-hmm. her last name is Jenkins. So if anybody wants to uh, seek out her services. I'll be sure to put her information in the show notes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so she was great. So I guess fast forward to actually being in labor. I would say a few days before I actually started the labor, I did get sick. But I didn't, I guess I didn't associate that with, hey, that's a sign that the baby's coming. I remember just being at the front desk at my job and my coworker that sat next to me, she felt sick and she had to leave early that day. And then the next day after I came from my checkup, when I left there, then I started feeling sick and I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe I got this from my coworker. So I'm not really thinking anything of it. So I just wound up developing a fever and nausea went to bed hoping to sleep it off. The next day I had to do an ultrasound. Oh, I forgot to mention that the part, Village Attorney is partnered with New York Metropolitan. 
Um, mm -hmm. So the reason why they're partnered with New York Metropolitan is because the Metropolitan's labor floor, they're not busy. So for anybody who's looking to actually take their time and not be rushed, you know, to <laughs> go into labor, mm -hmm. um, then definitely that option is for you um, because you can basically take your time. Nobody's, you know, no staff is running in there like, do you need an epidural? Do you need pain medication? They're all for whether you decide to do epidural or medications, or if you don't, which I didn't, I chose not to do uh, epidural or any type of medication. So I didn't have that pressure on me. So yeah, so if you don't want to be rushed, Metropolitan. Yeah, birth professionals, we all call Metropolitan an underutilized gem because it really is one of the only places that's not overcrowded. So that morning, I, you know, I still went to the ultrasound at Metropolitan. Uh, I still didn't feel good. So I told the ultrasound tech and she said, you know, if you're still feeling this way, you know, tomorrow, then come into the hospital. So Saturday comes in, sort of feeling okay. And then next thing you know, I just know that I fall asleep. I wake up and I'm just in a pool of sweat. I never knew that there was an actual little term of I woke up in a pool of sweat. So yeah, I literally woke up in a pool of sweat. So by Sunday, I was okay. So Monday comes and I decided you know, not to go into work, you know, just in case. So Tuesday morning, one o'clock in the morning, I did my usual bathroom routine like I usually do. I didn't think anything of it until I go to the bathroom. So I started feeling contractions that I never felt before. So I'm thinking, okay, well, this is new. Maybe within the next few minutes, the contractions come in again. So I just whipped out my contraction app. And my contraction app confirmed that, you know, your contractions are five minutes apart. You got to go to the hospital. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, this is too soon. So I think Nicholas was scheduled to be born. I believe it was January 14th. So it was January 7th that, you know, the contractions came in. Okay, so you're 39 so, weeks at this point. Okay. So yeah, so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is really happening. So I waited a while before I woke up my husband. So before I did that, I called the head midwife and she said, yeah, I definitely go into the hospital. I had to go in a little earlier because I had, you know what it's called, where they find the, uh, the bacteria in your... Vaginal, mm -hmm. GBS. Yeah, so I had yeah. the GBS. And so I had, it was recommended that I go in, you know, an hour or two ahead so that they can actually give me the, uh, what do you call it? Antibiotics. Yes, mm -hmm. antibiotics um, mm -hmm. for, you know, before the baby came out. So they wanted you to, to come in before your water even broke? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just so that they had time to administer the, mm -hmm. the antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So once I told my husband, he wasn't even packed. Even though I told him, like, you know, a few days, I'm like, listen, you got to, you know, pack up some stuff for the hospital. We got to be ready. So, yeah, so I was already packed. I only had, like, a few things to bring to put away, like, you know, my, uh, what is it, charger for my phone and whatever other things that I use on a daily basis. So, yeah, so him, he just took out one of those big blue Ikea shopping bags and just started dumping things in there. Frantically. <laughs> I just looked at him like he was crazy. So, <laughs> so we uh, took a lift, and uh, what is it? So once we got there, they put me in a room where they checked how far we dilated. And they also checked the baby's heartbeat to make sure everything was okay. 
And I believe about maybe an hour, hour and a half, that's when they put me in the actual labor room. So by that point, that's when the contractions were really getting more and more intense. Man, the only way that I can describe contractions is it's like menstrual cramps, but just on a different level. That's the best that I can describe them. So they were to the point where once the, the big contraction came, like I just, I couldn't talk, you know? So, and then my husband, it was funny because I remember in the class, he said, you know, when your wife is like that, don't talk to her. But that oh, that's just, right. That just went out of his head and he was just <laughs> trying to have a full-blown conversation with me. I'm like, don't talk to me. <laughs> they mean so, well, right? But <laughs> yeah, he meant well. He was, listen, he was, he did the best that he could, but just that one thing. Yeah, like, you're like, like, really, don't talk to me. I, mean, I, I can't respond to you. Yes. So he went out during the time that I'm having the contraction. He did go out to like a fruit vendor that was really out there, I guess, really late at night and got some fruit. I had my bottle of water. So this was pre-pandemic, right? You just yes. beat it? <laughs> yes, this is PG and you were Yay! <laughs> so I just beat it. Because so, um, the reason I said that is because during the pandemic, partners haven't been allowed to go anywhere once they come yeah. in with the laboring person. I think that's starting to change now here in September is when we're recording this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so <laughs> yay, glad you beat the pandemic and all the complexities that came with it. <laughs> So he gave me, so I, I, I think I must on like a banana or something and drank my water. Staying hydrated is like the best thing. Definitely drink your water. Uh, Do you remember how dilated you were or effaced from when you first checked in in, in triage? So I think when they checked me at that point, maybe I was at four, like the, the dilation, it was slowly progressing. So I know we got to the hospital maybe around, I want to say like 2.30 in the morning. So while I'm in the labor room, the contractions are getting super intense. My doula is coaching me through breathing. But uh, every time that hard contraction came, it's like, you know, my body on reflex just stopped breathing at that point. It's not because I didn't want to breathe. It's just, it was just a reflex. Like, ah, Mm-hmm. I can't breathe. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, um, we tend to hold our breath when <laughs> things are uncomfortable. I might have missed it, but did your doula meet you at the hospital or come to yeah, your home? Yeah, so I texted her um, to let her know that it's time. So she met us at the hospital. Oh, no, she actually did make it in before they put me in the labor room. So she, she came in on time. And she was guiding me through the breathing. She also gave me like a cotton ball with lavender to smell so that helped to you know help me forget about the contractions she also did the the counter pressure method which was really helpful she did have me sit on a yoga ball and bounce around but that one didn't really help to ease much of anything Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that things. can strengthen your contractions so it doesn't always feel great sometimes it feels great sometimes it doesn't because it makes things more intense yeah so what also helped me was walking around they did have me attached to a, a monitor but the good thing was I was allowed to walk around in the, mm-hmm. the labor room so, so you were attached to a monitor were you attached to an IV all the time or no yeah I was attached to the IV and it was also monitoring the baby's heartbeat still mm-hmm so, and when you said counter pressure, were there specific areas on your body where your doula was doing counter pressure? Well, she did the counter pressure like on my buttock area, 
Mm-hmm. So Probably a double hip where, squeeze. Yeah, so that really helped out a lot. Mm-hmm. I believe she also did the other method. I forgot what it's called, where she puts the wrap around the belly. And, Reposo. Mm-hmm. Yes. So she did that too. So that really helped out a lot. So that helped mm-hmm. us alleviate the pain. What also helped was actually holding my husband's hand every time the, the heart contraction came. So that was a good uh, distraction. Also kind of my own like revenge, like, you know, this is what you did to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I always say in class, you probably won't say that, but now that I suggested it, maybe you will. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, Sometimes we need that release <laughs> of that blame, <laughs> right? <laughs> This is what you get for also like speaking to me during a contraction, right? Yes, that's true. Yes. I had to I had to get him somehow. So that was that was my revenge at that point. <laughs> Love it. And then so I think I had I had the urge to use the bathroom. So I did. So I did the first time, but every time after that, it was basically a false alarm. I didn't have to go. But it just felt like I did. So the contraction that I had in the bed, I just decided, okay, I'm not going to the bathroom. But then I felt like a leak and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I urinated on myself. <laughs> so I just felt embarrassed. So when I got up and looked in the mirror in the bathroom, that was my bloody show. So I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> so they had to give me a new gown and went back into the, the bed. And the contraction was getting a more and more and more, and more intense. And then by this time, I believe that my uh, water broke. And uh, my doula had me get into a position where I'm basically like facing backwards on the, the bed, but I'm in a kneeling position with my legs open. So yeah, that's the other good thing about metropolitan. You know, if you want to assume a different position other than the traditional laying on your back with your legs open, you can do that. So that's the other good thing about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I got into that position. And so my doula tells me, push like, you know, you got to take a dump. So I started laughing. <laughs> yeah. So, so I go ahead and, um, and I go ahead and push. And well, I pushed when I felt ready. Because I don't want to confuse any listeners like, oh, you know, you just got to start pushing when you're not ready. Your body will tell you when it's time to really push and they'll also instruct you through it as well so when the time came to push my I pushed a few times and um, by this point I'm tired and eventually I did feel the ring of fire and by that time I'm super super exhausted and I'm to the point where man I don't even want to do this I don't even want to push it <laughs> but you know I mustered up whatever strength I could and I finally pushed uh, about two or three times and he was out. So um, that's pretty quick for a first timer. <laughs> that's very impressive. <laughs> well, it was because I think, like I said, we were in there by 2.30 and Nicholas came out at like 10.25 in the morning. So I guess, you know, that was pretty fast. But yep. also some of the things that did help is visualization. So I just visualized my cervix, you know, opening, mm-hmm. you know, very easily. You know, I kept saying the affirmation to myself that, you know, you can do this. Your body was meant to do this. Mm. Um, Did you ever need a reminder from those around you? Did you ever doubt (laughs) your ability? Most of us at some point will kind of start doubting it, but maybe you didn't. I don't know. I'm just curious. 
actually did it, but what having the doula there as far as being beneficial was just her helping to coach me through the pain, mm-hmm. the pain of it. Well, no, actually, I did have doubt. I'm like, you know, like when the contractions did start getting more and more intense, I'm like, maybe I should have taken the epidural. <laughs> I'm betting you were probably like eight or nine centimeters when that happened, because that's the most common time for people in transition to be like, uh, just kidding. I'm not sure I can do this. But usually we're really, really close. <laughs> yeah, so that's when I started thinking, okay, well, maybe I should have taken the epidural. Not because I, I believe I couldn't. Uh, give birth to the baby. It, it was just something to alleviate the pain. That's it. <laughs> so yeah, the pain was intense. But I think after delivering Nicholas, I forget about the pain. It's like, you know, it was like the, the huge, biggest sense of accomplishment. That's yeah. the, the only way that I could describe it. Because it's like, you know, I think if someone were to ask me, oh, you know, would you do that whole thing again? It's like, yes, I actually would. I, I mm-hmm. really would pain and everything because I believe that with modern medicine we've been duped into believing that our bodies don't have the capacity to give birth naturally. Um, we've been scared whether it's seen with Hollywood movies like, ah, you know, my water broke, I had a baby, ah, it's here, ah, you know, and you're turning into this monster because, you know, you're in so much pain. But I, I think they really over-exaggerate. Yes, you are definitely going to feel pain, but I don't believe that with modern medicine, it should trick you or make you feel bad that, you know, as a woman, you're not giving birth at a certain time. And I mean, I think that's the messed up thing with modern medicine is that you're basically on the clock that, you know, if you can't deliver this baby on your own at this time, we're just going to have to interfere. And that's what uh, I was really appreciative about at New York Metropolitan is that there was no interference. It wasn't like, okay, is the baby here? You know, come on, you know, you need to hurry up. Or, oh, you want an epidural? Oh, you want to get a C-section? You know, there wasn't that constant interference. Yeah, and you aligned yourself with care providers who trust the birthing person's ability to do this and have a very hands-off approach. Uh, they'll be hands-on if needed, right? But yeah. but like just a very patient hands-off approach and only if we need to do that, jumping in. That's so great that you <laughs> didn't have need of that. Yeah, that was really adamant. I said, no, I don't want this, you know, the epidural. I don't want any drugs. Don't give me anything. I want to actually really experience this. Mm-hmm. Um, not to, you know, if there are any listeners that plan on, you know, you want the epidural or any type of pain medication, mm-hmm. you know, if you feel that's right for you, then that's okay. Sure. But, yeah. you know, the journey that I wanted to take was I didn't want to be medicated mm-hmm. at all. I wanted to actually really experience it. I had that same feeling when I gave birth the first time of, yeah, wanting to be an active participant, knowing that my baby had to be an active participant and didn't really have a choice in the Mm -hmm. matter, you know, (laughs) for some reason that really held meaning for me in a way that for others, it doesn't really hold that same meaning. Um, I didn't want to have to rely on any medicine to actually, like I said, for me, I, I felt confident enough to believe that my body is meant to do this. And if my body is meant to do this, then I technically should not need any kind of medication to help me get through this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like I said, once he came, it was the, the biggest, you know, sense of accomplishment. And I also, I believe, well, during my pregnancy journey, I didn't want to know the gender of my baby. But you know, I did get a lot of pressure, like, oh, why don't you want to know the gender of the baby? And for me, it didn't make a difference. 
difference, you know, whether I had a boy or a girl. And I think even if I did have a preference, you know, if the baby winds up being the gender that I didn't have a preference for, then what, what can I do in that situation? So for me, I didn't want to know, but, you know, my husband confirmed, you know, gave birth to a boy. So once he did come, it was confirmed he did have a cleft. But like the ultrasound technicians were saying, it wasn't severe. So knowing that, you know, he did have the cleft, it didn't bother me. You know, for me, seeing him, you know, I was happy to see him. Finally, you know, I, I loved him once I saw him. So the cleft didn't really make a difference to me, you know, because he's my baby. Mm. So as far as the cleft, there wasn't any real struggle as far as dealing with it because again it wasn't severe so he breastfed fine he lacked that's what i was going to ask great so there were no issues with that usually they say that children that have clefts they may so like some type of leakage like you know when they drink mm-hmm. so might come out of their nose he didn't have that issue mm-hmm. um i believe they also said that he might suffer from like hearing problems so when they did do the hearing test once i gave labor he was fine do you mind sharing if you've gotten this far? I know it's just been a few months since you gave birth, but did they yet give you kind of a timeline of any kind of treatment or surgery that he might need? Oh, so yeah. So I got a referral from uh, the head midwife to surgeon, and I did reach out to one of the surgeons. He's a black surgeon. So again, for me, that was huge because you don't really know that there are surgeons of other races out there, especially for, for someone like me. I'm like, oh, a black surgeon. Yeah. So <laughs> it makes so much sense to me because there's already, no matter someone's color, just going through medical school and going into the medical system, there's so much history and systemic racism there yeah. that if I was black, I would totally want to have black care providers <laughs> just to hopefully give myself a chance that there's going to be less racism built in. I'm glad that you found so, yeah. somebody you're feeling well aligned <laughs> with maybe. So but, go ahead. Um, I, we first saw him, I want to say it was like the end of January or maybe the beginning of February. So he did his assessment of Nicholas, uh, and he said, no, he confirmed again, it's not a severe cleft. He said that he was looking towards doing surgery around April. <clears throat> so I had to get him at whatever weight that he wanted Nicholas to be at by the time uh, surgery came. I think he said he needed him to be at 10 pounds and up. Because I believe when he first got there, he was at like seven pounds. So he needed him to get to at least 10 and up in order to be able to do the surgery. And he gave us these, these nasal hooks. I know that's not the proper term for them, but one of Nicholas's nostrils because of the cleft was not caving, but it was kind of like a slightly pushed in a little. So it wasn't a, a perfect oval nostril. So he needed that in order to, I guess, make the surgery process a little easier. So we had to put the nose hooks in like every day, just to uh, shape his nostril. So of course, once the pandemic thing came in, the surgery had to be pushed back. So he didn't get his surgery in April. He didn't get it until around like the end of May. 
Did they explain at all what the rationale was for the timing of the surgery? I mean, originally when they were recommending that it be done in April, did they explain at all, like, this is why we want it to be done when he's so young? So the reason is the healing process. Babies heal surprisingly very quickly. Ah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so yeah, so that was the main reason. And um, the reason why they do it so young is because babies heal very quickly. So for anybody who might have a child with a deformity that may need surgery, you know, if they are recommending that it be done while the child is still an infant, then I would say definitely take it into consideration because mainly the reason is that babies, mm-hmm. they heal very, very quickly. So then probably the delay that happened because of the pandemic wasn't like significant enough to, for that factor to be affected, no. right? So once the surgery day came, I had to stop feeding him. I know for sure at like five in the morning because he was scheduled to have surgery at like 1140 in the morning. So I had to stop feeding him. And I think I had to stop giving him liquids after seven o'clock in the morning. So when we got there, we went through the whole process of I had to be scanned to make sure I didn't have fever. So by the time we got to the floor where the surgery was going to take place, the surgeon was running behind because he he was conducting a surgery prior to Nicholas's. So that surgery was taking a little longer than expected. So Nicholas wasn't, I guess the surgery didn't take place until like three in the afternoon. Luckily, he was good, but then he just started getting antsy because basically he didn't eat anything since five o'clock in the morning. So I had to do whatever I could to keep him entertained, to keep him. I was thinking without any delays, I was thinking, was he like super cranky because these babies like to eat frequently? Luckily, he wasn't. Anytime I got like the signal that he was about to start crying, you know, I would pick him up and he would start bouncing him around. And that would distract him. So uh, he was okay. So once he got put into surgery, the surgery took about three hours. And for me, I felt confident in the doctor that he was going to do a great job. So for anybody that does have to do any type of surgery, I believe he he may just specialize in clefts, but he might specialize in any type of cranial deformity. He works at uh, Columbia Presbyterian. So his name is Dr. Thomas Imahiroba. So he's a very, very good surgeon. Great. Once I get the name from you, I will be sure to include that in the show notes. Thank you. And were you um, able to be in the OR? No. Okay. Um, That was the only thing. I couldn't be in the OR. And by this point, it couldn't be me and my husband. Because of the pandemic, only one of us Uh, was there. Even like at the hospital at all, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just uh, me which is more understandable because I was, I'm, I'm breastfeeding him. Mm-hmm. I don't, um, I really gave him um, a bottle. So it made sense, you know, for me to just be there mm-hmm. with him. So how did that feel for you emotionally? If you're comfortable sharing that emotionally, like I said, during the surgery, I was fine. You know, mm-hmm. I had confidence that the surgeon was going to do a great job. Mm-hmm. What I wasn't prepared for was seeing him once he started getting, once the anesthesia started wearing off, he was making these noises that that I, I wasn't used to hearing. And mm. he had the, the adhesive on his upper lip, well, the, the upper area. And he just looked like he was in a lot of pain. And I felt so bad because as a parent, you naturally want to be able to help your kid to stop crying. And 
there was really nothing that I could do at that point. Because once they transferred us into the room that he would stay in overnight, that's when it got really bad. Once the anesthesia wore off, he was crying hysterically. I, like I said, I, there was nothing that I could do. The only thing that could ease him was giving him pain medication, which I believe the nurse, she gave him uh, the oxycodone to alleviate the pain. And that helped him get to sleep a bit. And I assume after post-op that you weren't able to bring him to the breast yeah. for a while, um, yeah? Yeah, I couldn't do that. So I and that would have been was. so comforting. That's got to be hard for both you and baby, I would think. Well, I didn't realize how hard it would be for me until I, I went a few days without breastfeeding him. Mm. Like I didn't realize how much I love breastfeeding him because for me, it's, it's a bonding moment with mm-hmm. you know, me and the baby. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize how much I missed it until I went a few days without actually doing it. Because him, he was he was cranky. He wasn't trying to even drink from a bottle or anything like that. He wanted breath. And of course, I couldn't, I couldn't provide it to him. So for me, it was heartbreaking, you know, because like I said, for me, breastfeeding with him is a special moment. Were you just exclusively pumping for a while or did you stop breastfeeding at that point? I did have to pump for a while. And then once it got, because I think I went two weeks straight without breastfeeding him because I had to wait until that glue above his lip came off before I can actually start breastfeeding him. So that took maybe about two weeks before I could actually breastfeed him again. So during that two week span, I was pumping, but because I wasn't, Feeding him as often as I was accustomed to, my milk ducts eventually stopped producing. So once I was able to breastfeed again, to start triggering my milk ducts to actually start producing the milk again. But I set like a timer, like every two hours, just put them on my breast. Even though I probably make up for lost time. Much. <laughs> uh-huh. So that's what I did to just get my milk ducts producing milk again. So eventually they did. I think it took like a, a day and a half for it to come back. So I was happy. Oh, yay. Of course happy. <laughs> it's nice to hear your body was so flexible and like, okay, okay, we're doing this now. Okay. <laughs> nice. So yeah, he does have a scar. So I have to apply a, a cream to minimize the scar. But before and after, I, I think before the surgery, I did say that I would miss the cleft because it's basically part of him. You know, that it was what he was born with. But I know mm. that living in a very, I guess, vain world, mm. you know, having a cleft wouldn't be acceptable. Mm. So, but I mean, he looks great with the cleft. He looks great without it. So for me, I'm glad that the surgery went really well with him. He's just a really happy, bouncy baby. He did heal very, very fast. So they weren't lying when they said babies heal very fast. So he really did. I think what I did is uh, when we first got home, they did recommend, I, I was prescribed the oxycodone and a Tylenol to help out with the pain. So we did the surgery on Wednesday. We got home on Thursday. And I was administering the, the pain medication to him. But I think by maybe Saturday, Sunday, he really wasn't in any pain. So I didn't have to worry about giving him the oxycodone or the uh, Tylenol. I just had to administer the antibiotic. I think I only had to administer that for like a few days. But yeah, that was the only thing I had to worry about administering. Because other than that, he was fine. 
So yeah, the only thing that he got cranky about was still that you know, he can't breastfeed. But other than that, that was about it. Hmm. Nice. Well, it sounds like as a surgical procedure goes, it was a relatively uncomplicated journey through that. Yeah, it was. So what I would say, though, is I believe that he probably will have to do another surgery again. Okay. Because of uh, how the top gum line took shape. So there is a part of his gum line that's a bit off. Mm-hmm. So surgeons, they recommend that they'll probably look into it. And if they feel that surgery needs to be done, they'll get that done when he's a little older. Mm -hmm. So So is that somewhere where he goes annually or how frequently to have that checked? I'm not sure. The only thing that we're doing follow-ups with is the scar, just to make Mm -hmm. sure that the scar is healing the way that it should be healing. Mm -hmm. Um, And do they have you doing any scar massage? Yes. So Mm -hmm. whatever cream that he um, recommended us, Mm-hmm. It's recommended that while you're applying it to massage the scar. Mm-hmm. And usually with that, it's a little difficult at times because you need to give him like a toy to distract him. Because I don't know if us massaging it is painful for him or he's just irritated, like, oh, get off my face. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, sure. I don't know. I don't know which one it is. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe a little both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have to give him something to distract him while I massage the, the scar. I mean, overall, I would say that I guess the situation with the cleft, it wasn't severe, but um, I'm sure if there's anybody that will listen to this podcast where the babies have been diagnosed with something severe. So I can't really give any advice as far as how you should handle it emotionally. The only thing that I can recommend is just, you know, love your baby. And the other thing that I could suggest is possibly, since we live in an age of information, get on sites like Facebook or Instagram that where they have groups that cater to whatever it is that your child will have. Mm-hmm. Because when you hear that, you're thinking, oh, you know, I'm going through this alone. When, you know, you'll be surprised that there's a lot more people out there that are going through what you're going through. Mm-hmm. So it's best to have that support system if you can't find any groups that uh, cater to that and mm-hmm. make your own group. Because again, yeah. you'll be surprised that there's probably many parents out there that are experiencing that. And actually, statistically, in this country, kids with deformities, I was shocked by the statistic. It's one in 33, mm. which is really shocking. Mm. So, so yeah. So again, if you're you're going to have a kid with a deformity, look for that support. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I I was going to ask you if you had specific resources that you found helpful. So for you, has that been finding a Facebook group or two that's helped you or books or websites, anything in particular? I didn't really need the support system, honestly, Mm -hmm. because again, the the, the class was mild, severe. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if, if it was a lot more severe where let's say we're having some issues um, maybe we personally didn't understand or that we couldn't handle them. Yeah, I would have definitely sought out like a Facebook group or an Instagram group just to help to cope with what it is that I'm going through. I didn't feel the need to seek it out because like I said, it wasn't something that was, I guess, overwhelming or it didn't really interfere with, I guess, our, our livelihood or anything like that. I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, everybody's different on this. I mean, some people might have gotten the diagnosis that you got and 
been really scared, you know, because it's just new and needed that community. But it's great that you didn't feel as much of that need and that you just kind of really took it in stride. Well, for me, it was mostly, I will admit, like throughout the whole pregnancy when they were telling me, oh, you know, you have a maybe has a possible club. I was just in denial the whole time. Oh, that's right. You said that <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> A little denial goes a long way with certain things. <laughs> it, it does make sense that why get too stressed about something when you don't know fully exactly what the situation is until you meet your baby. Exactly. You think that, that was that part was, of it? That was the mindset that I was in. I said, you know, we don't know for sure. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to go through this whole pregnancy being stressed out mm-hmm. with the unknown. So mm-hmm. why not just wait until the baby's here to really assess the situation? Yeah. So that's where my mindset was at when it came to that. Because I didn't, I really honestly didn't want to waste time being stressed out for nothing. Mm-hmm. Or not stressed out, but just stressed out about the unknown. Yes. So yeah, such so wisdom I said, there. I, I just wanted to have a positive mindset throughout the pregnancy. So I didn't want that factor to weigh in on how I was dealing with in my pregnancy. Mm. That's beautiful. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that because I think there's some real wisdom there, truly. Is there anything that you haven't gotten to share about your postpartum journey or anything else that you haven't gotten to share yet that you'd like to share before we close things out? So postpartum journey. Mm. And I think that for any Black woman, it's okay to be vulnerable in that state, you know, and again, this was for any woman that feels that kind of pressure of like, oh, I gotta be super mom. I gotta be the most amazing mom ever. And it's okay. You you don't expect yourself to be super mom. You know, mm. tell that side of you, listen, go, go sit down somewhere, relax. It's okay that we don't have this all together. We'll get there, but right now we don't have it all figured out and mm. that's okay. So just have that support system ready just in case if you need it. Because, I mean, there will be times when you might be one of the few lucky parents where your kid falls asleep all night throughout the (laughs) night, but not many of us are that fortunate. Right. (laughs) So so for those who aren't fortunate, of course, you know, you are going to have basically many nights of lack of sleep. Mm -hmm. They do say sleep when your baby sleeps. But for me personally, that was very difficult because I'm not the type of person that can fall asleep on command. For me, I have to really get into the mood to actually fall asleep. So mm-hmm. when he was sleeping, I couldn't sleep. So mm-hmm. I had to find other ways to keep myself occupied. And of course, that did really mess with my mental state, you know, because with lack of sleep, you're tired, you get mm-hmm. more irritated. Mm-hmm. Bless my husband's soul. I was, he was, he was getting it. (laughs) (laughs) I was lashing out at him. I really was. And, you know, like I said, bless his soul for being patient (laughs) with me. But the good thing I would say is that I do have family that's open to just watching him Mm. whenever I need that, that break. That's golden. So like I said, if you haven't already, before the baby comes, I will recommend have a support system ready i won't doubt that family they're gonna go i don't want to watch the baby like once the baby is born they're not even going to care about you they (laughs) it's the baby right it's all about the baby yeah it's all about the baby it's not about you 
So definitely take advantage of that with any family members or any friends that you personally trust. You feel that you trust them in your baby and your care. You because you are definitely going to have those days where you just need a day to yourself. Don't think that you could just handle it on your own without any assistance because mm-hmm. you're not only hurting yourself, but you know you could put yourself at risk of also hurting your baby. So mm-hmm. don't think that you can handle it all by yourself. Mm-hmm. Ask for the help. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. Just ask for it. Mm-hmm. And um, I would also recommend for the expectant mothers, don't expect your significant other, like whatever you expect of your significant other, actually communicate that with them. Yes. Um, That's so good. <laughs> don't, don't think, oh, he or she, they're going to do this. And Never assume. Don't, don't <laughs> <laughs> you will be highly disappointed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. that also adds stress to your labor. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so actually communicate. I would say, even though me and my husband did take the, the class with you, and you know, you did go over the uh, different, what is it, pressure things to help alleviate pressure and things like that. Mm-hmm. Because of his work schedule, we didn't even have time to practice any of it. Because mm, it's hard. he would yeah. come home at crazy hours of the night, or he would just come home and just be dead tired. So, luckily, I was fortunate enough to have the doula in place yeah, um, to great. help out with that. So, you know, if your significant other falls into that line where, you know, they come home from work, they don't want to know anything about counter pressure or anything because they're tired, have a doula mm. because that's going to really help with you know the doula coming in and help alleviating alleviating um any type of pain that you feel mm-hmm. because your significant other if you guys haven't been practicing anything they're not going to really know how to maneuver and help alleviate whatever pain or pressure it is that you're going through mm-hmm. um so again communicate whatever expectations you have from your significant other just sit down with them and say hey listen this is what i need from you at the time when it's time to have this baby. And if they feel, and I would say with the significant other receiving this information, if you personally feel that, okay, well, maybe I think I would be good at that, then just be honest. Don't say, oh, yes, definitely. I'm going to be there for you 100%. <laughs> and then when the time comes, you can't deliver. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so actually communicate. So don't have this expectation that you're sick other is going to be this super amazing awesome person that's gonna know what to do because they're they're new with it just as much as you are so Mm -hmm. don't expect that from them Mm -hmm. and I know there's probably women out there who have heard uh, horror stories about other women's birth don't uh, attach yourself to that you know they've probably just been willing to share you know, out of excitement as far as the experience that they personally went through as far as with their birth experience. But don't let their birthing stories scare you into believing, oh, okay, well, is that going to happen to my birth? You know, oh my gosh, I don't want that to happen. Just think positive about your birthing experience and how you want to visualize uh, your birthing experience. I would say uh, if you have uh, like plans as far as how you want to raise your child, what you want to feed your child. And if you share this with family members or friends, they might think you're crazy. Um, and they might sway you into thinking, okay, well, that's, I don't think that's the right path that you should take. 
I would say this is what I want for my child. Don't allow other people's opinions to sway you into thinking that what you want for your child isn't the right uh, thing. Yeah, because everybody's got opinions, right? <laughs> yes, everybody. Everybody's an expert. Everybody's an expert. But you, as you're saying, I think you are your baby's own best advocate, you know, and you are the one who knows them best and yes. knows the best for them. So I love this. These are such <laughs> rich pieces of wisdom. You're giving like so many more than we usually get per episode. This is like a gold mine. Thank you. <laughs> oh, and then also the most important thing, I don't expect everything to go as planned. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. Most likely along the road, you are going to definitely have some disappointments where you expected something and it didn't happen. Like your home birth needing to yeah, so shift. Yes, my home birth, finding out that my baby has a cleft. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all expect to give birth to a healthy baby. We're not mm-hmm. thinking there's a possibility of a deformity or mm-hmm. anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just thinking, oh, baby, baby's going to come in be healthy and all that but then mm-hmm. okay well this is what to expect when the baby comes mentally you're not prepared for that but you're just not and i'm not saying to automatically expect the worst mm-hmm. as far as with uh, the baby being born but if you do get that news find a support system mm-hmm. that's going to help you cope with that emotionally mm-hmm. i think that's everything that i could think of this has been so, so great. I appreciate your taking the time and being willing to share your very personal journey into parenthood. Thank you so much, Amira. Be well. No problem. Be well as well and stay safe. You too. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye. Wasn't Amira's story rich with insights? I continue to be grateful for her willingness to share her journey into parenthood. Amira touched on the fact that black birthing people have far worse outcomes than white birthing people. Black women are around three times more likely to die in childbirth than white women and up to 12 times as likely in New York City. This must change. I'm going to say the names of a few black women who died recently in childbirth here in New York City as a tribute to them. I also hope that if this information stirs up strong emotions in you like it does in me, that you'll look them up and advocate for justice for them as well as for changes in our maternal health care system. Just three of the many names we need to remember and honor are Cordiel Street from Brooklyn, Amber Isaac from the Bronx, and Shaasia Washington from Brooklyn. One important kind of advocacy that's underway here in New York City to help improve outcomes are efforts to open new out-of-hospital midwifery-led birthing centers. A new one recently opened in Manhattan called Jazz Birthing Center, and there are efforts to begin a birthing center in the Bronx called The Birthing Place and other New York City boroughs as well. In fact, Amber Isaac's partner and the foundation he established in her memory have joined the efforts for The Birthing Place. Another important way you can help is to contribute to organizations that are led by Black, Brown, and BIPOC professionals that provide accessible birth and postpartum services such as Ancient Song Doula Services and Ashe Birthing Services. I'll link to more information on all of this for you to contribute or get involved in advocacy efforts in the show notes for this episode, episode 43, over at birthmattersshow.com. You can also refer to episode 16 for foundational resources on the topic of maternal mortality. 
You can see why, as Amira shared from her personal journey, it's common for Black birthing folks as well as Indigenous and other birthing people of color to intentionally seek out professionals who share their racial or ethnic background. Many BIPOC folks feel like they're more likely to receive compassionate, patient-centered care and feel heard and therefore may feel safer due to the shared cultural experience and history. There's no right or wrong in these choices, of course, and it's always going to be a very personal choice, but just something for listeners to consider as you form your birth and postpartum support team. Before we give you a sneak peek of next week's episode, a quick word from our sponsor. If booking live group childbirth class just doesn't work for your busy schedule, or if you're suffering Zoom burnout, there's another great option for you. The Birth Matters Complete course is an online self-paced version of my live interactive full class curriculum. It covers not only prep for an amazing birth with self-advocacy tips, best current evidence, and tips for partners, but also holistic postpartum wellness, lactation, and newborn care. And to top it off, you get lifetime access so that you can use it as a refresher later in this or future pregnancies. How great is that? To get the benefit of a more personalized experience, you also have an option to add to the course a 30-minute virtual coaching session. This has been a really popular option during the pandemic. We're continuing to offer a large, limited-time discount for podcast listeners, as well as anyone who might be struggling financially through these times. So grab the promo code and purchase over at birthmattersnyc.com. Okay, here's your sneak peek for next week. Everyone came. We started setting up the room. The lights, like we turned off like all the lights. We had three or four sets of electronic candles. We brought some. Dula brought some. Yeah, yeah we also brought a drum. <laughs> we were going to have like a sound bath. It was really nice to kind of like set up this like ceremonial space. Like we were coming in with the intention that it wasn't going to be laboring. It was going to be like a birth ceremony and celebration. It's pretty much an extension of like meditation. So I know that it is such a beautiful way to initiate like that inward journey. And sound bath is something that could be shared with everyone in the room. Like, so it was like kind of a communal experience. And so that's what we were like hoping to create. So it was like a tool to help me kind of get into deeper states of meditation, but also a way to create like this sacred communal space for everyone to participate. The thought for you to ponder today, based on something Amira shared and practiced, expect the unexpected in the journey into parenthood, doing your best to stay positive and flexible. Thanks for listening to the Birth Matters podcast and have a great week.